0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Today we begin what we could call the rest of the history of David, in other words, David part 2. 1 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 8 was David's part 1, focusing on the rise of David, ending with four summary verses at the end of chapter 8. While most of chapters 9 through 20 here of 2 Samuel are about God's servant David actually under the rod of God's discipline... Because of all the trouble that David got himself into, this chapter, chapter 9, this morning, gives us great insight into God's covenant love for his people. This is what's behind David's incredible display of kindness to the grandson of the previous king, Saul. Saul this king who had tried to find and kill David on so many occasions and for such a long period of time that is recorded in 1 Samuel. Why is David wanting to show kindness to someone who looks to be the only surviving member of Saul's house? If you're able, would you please stand as I read chapter 9? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I may have noticed one particular word that appears often in the first half of this chapter the word kindness. This is really the key word of this chapter. And it's used those three times in verse 1 and 3 and 7. The question is, what does this word mean? This word you should be well acquainted with. It's translated here just a little differently. In the English Standard Version, almost every time we see this word, which is all over the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, it's translated as steadfast love. Here, this is a huge aspect of steadfast love, kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it has a great definition. And If you can write fast, you ought to write this down. We've given the definition of chesed before. This is a little different because of the subject it's dealing with. The definition of kindness here is love that is willing to commit itself to another by making a promise a matter of public record. Steadfast love. There is a direct link between what's going on with David here in chapter 9. And what happened between David and Saul's son Jonathan in First Samuel chapter twenty, verses thirteen through seventeen? Jonathan recognized early on that David was the man God had chosen to be the next king, not himself. Remember those chapters? Such a great story. It's a long time ago now, wasn't it? Jonathan grew in his respect and love for David, and the two became close, fast friends. Jonathan stepped in several times between his father, King Saul, and David, his friend, the Lord's anointed. Why? To keep his father, Saul, from killing David. And one of those times was in 1 Samuel 20, David and Jonathan made a covenant together. Let's read that again. 1 Samuel 20, verses 13 through 17. But it should please my father, but should it please my father to do you harm, Jonathan speaking here, The Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, David, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. Forever, When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan acknowledged that David, David, would one day be king instead of him. With that in mind, then he requests protection for him and his family when David takes the throne. That should blow our minds. He loved the Lord God so much the Lord God was primary in his life, and it showed, because he was glad for David to be the chosen king and not himself. So that's the covenant they made, and it's rather important. So what we see here in verse 1 of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is David remembering his friend Jonathan And the covenant between them. Verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David finds a servant of the house of Saul with a cool name, Ziba. And from Ziba, David learns that there is a son of Jonathan alive, one crippled in his feet. And David finds out where this son was, and he has him brought before him. This son's name is Mephibosheth. And we first encountered Mephibosheth back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, when he was five years old. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, them dying in that huge battle, came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, it's hard to keep track sometimes of how much time has gone by, but it's been about 15 to 20 years since Jonathan's death, since that account there in chapter 4, verse 4. Can you imagine the fear in Mephibosheth's heart as he was brought before the new king, the king whose power was now consolidated, the king who could very easily look at Mephibosheth as the last remaining threat to the throne. So the very first thing we see Mephibosheth do when he's brought before David is he fell on his face and paid homage. David's response, Mephibosheth, with feeling and the desire to do him good, But Mephibosheth wasn't sure about this yet. So Mephibosheth says, behold, I am your servant. Emphasizing the fact that he is anything but a threat to David. And hoping that David's intention and intentions, perhaps, are good. Knowing that if they're not, that he's history. And now we come to the heart of the whole chapter. That's the whole, what's going on there in the first six verses. But in verse 7, we see the heart of this chapter. The words David speaks here echo the words of our Savior on so many occasions. Do they not? David said to him, what? Do not fear. And then comes the word kindness again, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So, an encouragement to all of us, David does not go back on his promise to Jonathan, even though so much time has passed, 15 to 20 years. Actually, more than that, because that was before the sudden. No new circumstances had come up that changed his plans and his love and respect for Jonathan still is what motivates him to want to show kindness to Jonathan's son. Did you pick that up? This is not something he's doing grudgingly. He wants to keep this covenant. He wants to show the son of Jonathan kindness. So this isn't just a formality. The promise made in the past actually directs and fuels the, f- the fidelity that we see here in the present. Keep that in mind. We're coming back to that. Does our culture, does the word world we live in, understand this? That promises made in the past should direct and fuel our fidelity in the present? I don't think so. The thinking of our world has, incurred, has encroached into our thinking so much that we as Christians even have a lot of trouble even realizing that we are not thinking biblically about certain things in life. And this is hopefully a wake-up call for all of us. The kindness that David wishes to extend to Mephibosheth is the kind of steadfast and faithful love that God extends to his people. It's a love that truly loves and is therefore willing to bind itself. It's willing to promise. It's willing and glad to obligate itself so that the other person may stand securely in that love. Young people out there, do you understand this? Adults, do you understand this? The world that we run in believes that freedom is being able to do anything you want to do. Ask anybody on the street, which people do now regularly or at college campuses on some great Christian programs that I listen to every once in a while, and ask these simple questions. What do you think it means to be free? Basically, it comes down to being able to do anything you want to do. Hello? That's not what being free means to God. That's not what being free means in the Bible. Freedom in the Bible means to be free to do what you know you ought to do. And that's a huge difference, is it not? Free to do what you know you ought to do. Why? Because you are in Christ. And in Christ, you can now call out to him, depend on him, desire to please him, and thus you have been set free to do what you know you ought to do. The power of enslavement to sin has been broken, and you may stand securely in his covenant love, in his covenant with you. The Christian life consists of several covenant obligations. Does it not? Obligation is just almost a cuss word in our culture. It's not understood, especially to the high authority, our God Almighty. Folks, we need to get this understanding back. We need to talk about it. We need to use these definitions We need to teach our kids this. We need to remind each other of this. When you make sacred promises, they should mean something because they are sacred. For instance, when you publicly confess your faith in identifying with Christ in baptism or in becoming a member of a local church, that is a sacred promise. It's a covenant. In marriage, you make a covenant. You make vows to your spouse. And they take precedent over your own expectations and your own desires. You can't keep such vows because it is a dramatic Or part of a show. That won't work. You keep those vows because it is faithful or steadfast to do so. And sometimes you keep your covenant because you promised you would. Not because you feel like it all the time. Because we don't. Let me read you an example. Hopefully this will hit. This is from the works of B.B. Warfield, the esteemed biblical theologian of Old Princeton Seminary, which are still read in the church today. I've got the whole set in my office. It's like jumping into another world and being able to smile a lot all the way through it. What is not so well known about B.B. Warfield, Warfield is the tale of his marriage. Warfield was pursuing studies in Leipzig, Germany in 1876 through 1877. And this time was also doubled as a honeymoon with his wife. Yeah, I know. His wife, Annie. They were on a walking tour in the Harts Mountains when they were caught in a terrific thunderstorm. And the experience was such a shock to her that she never fully recovered, becoming more or less an invalid for life. This is their honeymoon. Warfield only left her for his seminary duties, but never for more than two hours at a time. His world was almost entirely limited to Princeton and to the care of his wife for 39 years. One of his students noted that when he saw the Warfields out walking together, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her for 39 years. That is the power that the covenant that they made to one another before their God exercises. What kind of impact do you think B.B. Warfield had in his classes? besides the fact that they were the most intellectually stimulating and academically on target biblically in every other manner possible, the fact that you could walk outside on the campus and see him and his wife walking around in care when she could get outside and know that he could just literally almost never leave the campus for 39 years. Was he glad to do it? Yes. What an example. I've got a feeling that when he spoke, his words came out very powerfully just because his students knew where his heart was for his wife. Perfect example. I also have a feeling that if he made a promise... To a student, they knew he would keep it. So the first thing that we learn about David's kindness here in this chapter, this kessed, this love that is willing to commit itself to another by making a, its promise a matter of solemn and public record, the first thing that we learn is that this kind of love provides what protection, security. An atmosphere that frees us up to do what we know we should do. The second thing that we learn about David's kindness is seen in the next phrase here in verse 7. We read, I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. I don't think Mephibosheth really knew whether he would be alive to hear the second part of whatever David said to him. So first... He's blown away because he knows David's, he's secure that David is not trying to kill him. And then, in fact, all of all of the land of Saul, his grandfather, is going to be restored to him as the only living member of his house. What does this teach us? This kind of love? You nope. Know, play on words here, provides what? Provision. David restores Saul's farmland to Mephibosheth, and later verses explain that Ziba and his people are to work it, providing Mephibosheth's income. You might have noticed that Ziba's kind of rich himself. Fifteen sons and twenty servants. And yet they were providing Mephibosheth's income and doing it gladly. Mephibosheth was given what he needed and more. So this kind of love provides protection or security. This kind of love provides provision. And one more, this third thing we learn about David's kindness is seen in the last phrase of verse 7. And you shall eat at my table always. This kind of love provides position, preference. Mephibosheth was not to grovel like a servant at the king's feet, but to sit at his table like one of the king's sons. And that point is mentioned four times in our text. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13. Let that sink in. David's provision from Mephibosheth has gone well beyond David's promise to Jonathan, in which Jonathan was basically asking for his life and the life of his family to be spared when David became king. That's what... He was asking for. David doesn't just let Mephibosheth live; he heaps, heaps all kind of goodness on him. And he, Mephibosheth, paid homage, saying, "What is your servant that you should show regard?" And what is he? How does he describe himself? As a dead dog, such as I. Now, we can say two things about Mephibosheth's condition. He was crippled, and he had been since he was five years old. But even worse, he was descended from Saul, who obviously was an enemy of David. And we've got to remember that purging was common practice for a king who came to power. Getting rid of all claims to the throne was the name of the game. Mephibosheth knows that he has nothing going for him regarding his standing before David. He knows that. He calls himself a dead dog. The meaning there has nothing to do with dogs. The meaning there, it's a way, it's a metaphor. It means contemptuous. He's useless. That's what he's saying. David, I'm contemptuous to people around me. I'm crippled. I'm of the the house, the only last member of this house of this king that was derided and brought God's name into question in everything he did. I'm useless. Mephibosheth saw himself as contemptible and useless and knew that he had not merited David's kindness. Who does that sound like? He knew he did not merit David's kindness. There was no way for him to repay it. No way. And we will never appreciate David's covenant love as expressed here to Mephibosheth unless we understand the source of it, the author of it. Who is that? While we were still weak, verse 6. While we were still sinners, verse 8. While we were still enemies, verse 10. Fits with Sunday school this morning. Isn't this the same kind of kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth? what God did for those he came to say? Yes, it does. It's a beautiful picture. That's the point. It's a kind of who could have guessed quality of God's love? Who could have guessed that God would do this for those who are weak, who are depraved sinners? who are enemies of God himself. Who could have guessed it? Same question people were asking. Who could have guessed that David would bring Mephibosheth and let him eat in his own table, provide security for him and everything he needed? One writes, The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that he has no business, in a sense, loving whom he loves. And the minute we forget that, we expect God to do all sorts of wonderful things for us because he's there to make us the center of the universe. And that's when we get off track. Oh, no, he isn't. We're here to give him glory. He loves us first so that we can love, so that we can keep our promises and our covenants and do it gladly because it's for him. We are the Lord's Mephibosheths. And it could take on this special meaning in a body of Christ. If you sense that someone is doing this well, you can smile and say, Hey, Mephibosheth, enjoying God's grace this week? It's a way to encourage each other with a little humor. Try it. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, and he ate like one of the king's sons. There is absolutely no reason in and of ourselves why why we should be eating continually at the king's table, which is what we're going to do right now. So we should come to the table of the Lord, which is this physical and visible reminder of who we are in Christ, and why God did this how God did this and maybe this story in the Old Testament can be used by us to recognize more the joy that we have as his people to know him and have him in our lives because of where we came from not not meriting any of it and the reverence that we're privileged to give him. Did you catch that? The reverence that we're privileged to give him. He is worthy, but we're privileged to revere him ourselves as his own. And then the faith that we can by his grace exercise in him day by day. Again, I am completely blown away by how not planning when what part of Second Samuel comes up that today ended up with Mephibosheth eating at David's table.